Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars pertaining to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2019. Episode 245, Selling Games, Mass versus Specialty slash Hobby. Presented by Brian Turtle, Peter Hayward, and Avenel Wing. Fuck him. And two, I will do a console and we will talk about it. Could one of you say uh, the name of the panel? Um, can you say the name of this panel? This is, I don't know the official name, but it is... Um, Mass versus Hobby? Yeah, Mass versus Hobby. Okay, uh, this is Concord at uh, 2 p.m. Uh, okay. Um, it's just yours. Mine was off. So yeah, mine was off too. This is why it's off. Because yeah. Yeah. You know what? We're just gonna yeah. just yell. Yeah. It's still pick up. Well. Okay. Okay. So, Great. Yeah, we can probably speak loud enough. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hello. Uh, we are here to talk about the difference between uh, positioning your game for mass market versus hobby sales. Uh, I'm Avenel Wing. I run Double Exposure's Envoy program, so I spend all day every day thinking about how that difference sinks publishers and makes people's lives really complicated. Uh, I'm Peter Hayward. I'm Jellybean Games. We make games uh, that go into retail. And like, you've sold in both markets. We've sold in both markets. We've tried to sell in both markets. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Brian Turtle, and uh, like Peter, we also, well, I'm from Endless Games, and we also make games and sell them to retail, and we try to sell to both markets. And I've been told by certain members of the specialty and hobby market that my packaging is too mass, and at the same time, I've, of, I've often heard sometimes from my mass customers that my packaging is too specialty. So. I'm here to learn as much as I am to uh, try to educate. So just to cover some terminology real quick, when we say hobby, we mean um, your friendly local game store, right? So it is specifically through the distributors, uh, Alliance, ACD, there are several others, that sell to hobby game stores. So uh, when we say specialty, for the most part, we mean uh, Barnes & Noble and Gift and & Toy. When we say mass, uh, most of the time, most people who are using the three different terms are talking about Walmart, Target, and other non-bookstore mass media, mass market yeah. outlets. Specialty, as in they specialize in books and they have enough board games. Mass, as in they do everything. Hobby, as in it's people who are like, my hobby is board gaming. I will go to a store that dedicates to my hobby. Mm -hmm. Or you would often find that the specialty stores the owner of that store is working in that store you wouldn't find that to be the case in mass market stores right. uh, so just just out of curiosity uh, who here is is either published or is looking to publish their own game uh, raise your hands cool show of hands oh yeah everyone right, cool that's, uh, okay. that's all my questions <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so you've both had the challenges of trying to cross the line between the two what, in your opinion, is the, the most important thing you've learned? Uh, so, 
You go first, Brian. <laughs> okay, well, I would say this, and, and I've been doing this now since 1996. Um, we started the company off of a game that some friends and I came up with in college in 1994. It was a game called The Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So it was sort of a movie-type trivia game. We knew absolutely nothing, but the game idea that we had kind of developed its own sort of cult following. And so we put out a board game based on that game, and it went straight into Target, went straight into Toys R Us, didn't go straight into Walmart, but it hit some big mass key accounts right out of the gates, which is obviously very rare. It doesn't always happen that way. And uh, what had happened was it landed in those accounts and immediately fell flat on its face because people kind of knew the game, but they didn't know why there was a board game or the, the going right into mass is sometimes a dangerous approach because there's no incubation period. There's no chance for people to kind of, for a game to sort of get its sea legs under it. So we then sort of over the course of the following subsequent 25 years or so that it's been have learned that, you know, as great as it is to jump right in there and catch the biggest fish you can, sometimes getting that big fish onto a small boat is, uh, you know, kind of like the old man in the sea. So. It's, it's great to kind of start at that incubation level of specialty. Um, and, and as far as packaging goes, I know I kind of veered off course there, but I can kind of come back around to it. Way back when from those early days, I took uh, a, a guy who I work with actually, he had some packaging advice that I took to heart. And he said, selling a game isn't like selling a toy. It's not like you can pick it up and you know it's a teddy bear. It's like selling a book. So you want to have a cover that's compelling and enough of a description on the back that gives the flavor and kind of the, the juiciness of what's inside. So uh, how to balance that book package theory between mass and specialty, I'm 25 years in and I'm still trying to figure that part of it out. But I think that that book analogy is precise when it comes to selling the game. Yeah, the, the biggest lesson I learned uh, is probably that f from, from the, it's going to sound obvious, but the big stores are not invested in you. Like you are, you are a gamble for them and they can lose a hundred bets as long as one of them kind of takes off. So they're, they're going to do essentially nothing for you, which is a very uh, cynical way of looking at it, but it's important to know that going in. Like you are another product on their shelves. If you're not selling, they will just, you know, slash and burn and move on and you're left with the, with the ashes basically. And sometimes worse than the ashes because yeah. you may have to pay markdown money, so you could be yeah. in debt. Uh, yeah, you think you've made a so big yeah, sale. Let's talk about that because that, that's something that's very unique to uh, very unique. It's it's unique to mass and specialty, which is that they will essentially I don't know the exact right terms, so jump in and correct me when I when I get things wrong. They they will pay you a big chunk of money up front, and then if it doesn't sell, they'll be like, cool, we want that money back. Yeah. Uh, it's like an it's like a, a refundable advance essentially, and if you don't know that going in. Cool, that can mess with your budgets. Uh, and I know multiple people at this con, and we really got messed up by that. So we got some big lump sum payment. We were like, great, we just sold all these games. Let's do another print run. Let's do all this stuff. And then six months later, like, look, your game wasn't selling. So we basically gave it away, and we want that money back. So uh, that, was a, that was a fun experience. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't give the that games back. Well, they, no, know, they sell them. No. Like, the, the cost for them to ship the game back to, say, your distributor and then the distributor give it back to you is crazy. When that, so if you ever go into a, a big store and you see, like, 75% off, yep. 
that's because they're like, cool, we'll just get the money back from the person, like, we'll, yeah. yeah. You need to know that going in, so but they, we did not. They, they, they do a clearance sale to, to empty out their shelf space because that, that little one foot of shelf space to them is, is, re- is, uh, is real estate. And so they want to have product there that's going to continue to move and make them money. So as soon as yours starts to slow down, then they want the next one coming in because it's, they've got a revolving door of people waiting to get onto that space. Yeah. And if yours isn't performing at a level that they think it should be, you're going to get marked down. You're going to fund that markdown, and uh, and it can hurt a game. In in oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I have a publisher who was wildly excited to have a game in Target, and I was like, okay, but that kills it in hobby. You cannot sell that game in hobby anymore. Mm-hmm. You've murdered it. And they were like, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And I watched as it went from a $20 game to a $17 game to a $12 game. And at the point that it hit $7.46 on Target, uh, they were like, okay, yeah, we murdered that game in Hobby, and now we have all this stock sitting around. And what Hobby retailer is going to bring on, and what Hobby retailer is going to buy a title from a publisher that has proven that they are willing to, to take a title that they've gotten hobby public uh, hobby stores invested in, and then sell it to Target, where those people who have bought the stock have it in their store, now have a twenty dollar doorstop. Yeah, and, be, and because hobby doesn't work in that same kind of we'll get the money back, like hobby, hobby it's a sunken cost for them. Like they have paid that money, they can't ask for it back. It's not in the contract. And so when I when I say that the, the big box retailers, which is another term for the targets and the mm-hmm. WalMarts and the uh, Barnes and Nobles will slash and burn. Like that's what I mean. Like they will slash the prices, burn off the stock, get the money back from you. So it's, it's no risk to them. Like you know, they've they've lost the ability to sell something more profitable on that shelf. But they will take it very happily. They'll be like, yeah, sure, we'll try this out because for them it's it's a gamble with no downside. Whereas for you, it's it's stock that you theoretically could have sold for profit, which is one of those things that we try to do as companies. Try. <laughs> yeah. Right. Occasionally. Uh, I will say that name a big box store that sells games and I have tried desperately to have a conversation with a human being somewhere in their hierarchy, sometimes to the point of hanging out in their corporate offices and waiting for the right human to show up, uh, to have conversations about marketing board games or RPGs and like, what could we do and how does this work and why is this entire process completely opaque and why is it that either distribution or the retailers are the obstacle to getting these games, the people that want to throw money at them. And they aren't interested. And I'm really compelling and uh, am very, very good at talking my way into doors. And they're just like, nah, whatever. Uh, and so the thrill of, oh my God, my game is in Barnes & Noble and I get to send mom a picture of my game in Barnes <clears throat> Not as exciting as it sounds. It feels like winning the lottery and it's more like buying a lot of lottery tickets and not and crossing your fingers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you, Jellybean Games at this point, we we have Barnes and Noble pretty regularly asking like when when they can get another game of ours, and we're like, no, we're, like we're, we're actually turning them down at this stage just because the risk is 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 too risky for us. Like, it's it's a nice theoretical thing, but then in practice, it just turns into such a such a, a nightmare. Well, and the other thing is that the anybody involved in coordinating the conversations between a publisher and the big box store they don't understand what's opaque 
they don't understand what you can't see about the process. I came from book publishing, and so I understood remaindering and buybacks and the fact that sometimes you get money that you have to turn around and give back. And book publishers are like, yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's how it's always fun, worked. Yeah. Um, and the the people who navigate these spaces don't understand that that is the difference between a publisher succeeding or going under in a year. Uh, and so they don't always know what questions to answer. I've seen companies completely shot out of a cannon right into mass and then had issues like this where they had no safety net. It's basically the putting all your eggs in one basket, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a better strategy to kind of have multiple baskets and, you know, have that sort of diversification rather than really hoping for that lottery ticket to come through. Yeah. So. Now, the thing that is not apparent is that you can actually set boundaries and you can say, oh, uh, well, I understand that it's November 15th and you want to order 1,500 copies of my game. I'm going to ship you three, 300 copies of my game because I know how this, this works. You want that shelf to be nice and plump. And then on January 15th, you're going to remainder everything. I'm going to have to pay you back. But the, the language that happens in those negotiations are, well, well, if you do that, they, they might not renew with you or they might not pick up your next title. And there's this kind of ominous over, yeah, yeah right. overtone. Or the, the exit strategy. You know, there's, uh, why do we need an exit strategy? We just want to find the entrance and stay there a while. You know, so they're always sort of building in their own safety nets, which, le which leaves all of us as manufacturers no, zero safety whatsoever in that process. It's worth thinking too about the kind of customers who are going into your Barnes and Nobles and your Walmarts, like in uh, your, your Targets. They're not, again, speaking in, in generalities, they're not like browsing the shelves being like, oh, this looks like a fun game. They're often going in and being like, I heard about this. You know, mm -hmm. Cards Against Humanity is a classic example. That flies off the shelves in all these places because people go in, they're like, I heard of this thing and they can be pointed to the right section. So for, for us, for Jelly Bean Games, like, unless we have a game at that level, which is well, not that level, but a game where people who are not gamers, who are not in the hobby, are going to be asking for it, Big Box just doesn't make sense for us at this point. We're going to wait until we get something that people are like, oh yeah, I heard of this thing for whatever reason, and then we're like, okay, if people are asking for it, then we want as many avenues as possible. It's not... We, we kind of had the opposite approach of like, oh, once it's in Barnes & Noble, people will buy it. No, people who want to buy it will be going to Barnes & Noble is, is your ideal situation. You're not going to have anybody demo your product at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> at Barnes & Noble, you actually can because I'm trying to work out the, uh, the heralds to work into some Barnes & Nobles going into next year. But that's more of the but exception. Yeah, the yeah. No, no one who works at Target knows how your game plays. None whatsoever. No. Like, and Again, they're not paid to know. No, no, it's not their job to. It's not their fault. It's just if right. you look at the average, you know, basically, uh, unless your mum's a gamer, imagine your mum is, is going in to buy it and think like, okay, like, would she know how that game works or, or, or something like that? And in an ideal world, I could pick up the phone and be like, all right, Barnes & Noble, there are three titles that are coming out in the next six months that are perfect for the I don't have a gift for my mother-in-law section of the store. And so these things should be merchandised over with the pretty mugs and the nice right. teas. Mm -hmm. And here's three games that are perfect for, I need a gender neutral uh, present for a very thinky six-year-old. What are my options? But there's nobody paying attention to those types of investment because they sell enough, right? It's moving enough. And so there's no motivation for them to do that. 
Yeah, the, the, the exception, I suppose, and we're not at this stage, but I was, I was at, uh, I think it was Walmart a few weeks ago, and I saw there was like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg board game. And I was like, I could see people picking that up and being like, okay, like, it's quirky. If, if you've got like a, it's not even a brand, if you've it's got, a you've got it's such a hook, right. if you've got a crazy over the top hook that will get non gamers in, mm-hmm. maybe. But I think if you have that, you probably know it already. And, right. and it and, doesn't, and right, in the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that's technically that would be a licensed product anyway. So a lot of that stuff that you see on Target shelves and Walmart shelves is licensed stuff. And, and Endless Games, we've done licensed stuff to those stores. We were doing a lot of Goods and Todman TV game show titles that we could sell there because there was that inherent familiarity with those games. So the packaging was fine, but people automatically knew what the Price is Right was or what Family Feud was. You didn't have to pitch them on it. Whereas when we release a new title that's uh, developed by inventors like we have here, it's something that we absolutely have to and choose to stay out of that mass market right away on so that we can have that incubation, that specialty, at hobby, where we have people demoing it, where the floor staff knows what that game is. I'll give cases to a store and have them give them to every employee for a, a, a perk, so that way I know that employee knows what's in that box. No employee at Target knows what's in one of my game boxes. Yeah. You know? So when you are targeting a release for mass, how many copies do you well, account for? It can be a, a, an intimidating number. Um, it may start off as 25,000 units to go up to sometimes 100,000 units in a calendar year cycle. Uh, and that can put you out of business because yeah. you have to invest a lot to build that quantity. It's a huge gamble. And then, God forbid it fails, you may have a container loader if you're building here domestically you may have goods in a warehouse that all of a sudden are just going to start growing dust so there's not the same sort of turnover and unless of course it hits which is a whole other uh, panel but um but when you're dealing in the smaller sixes six pieces here 12 pieces there it's so much more manageable it's not as intimidating it's a better way to at least get started until you're uh, you know, a known brand, commodity, whatever it is. I mean, look at, like, I was just reading today, Funko, I think, had a $200 million quarter or something, and they started out just by having a few figures here and there. So once you kind of st- skyrocket like that, then I guess you're just printing money anyway. But starting at... <laughs> I'm those, sure from that point of view, it doesn't yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? But, but either way, the, it, it's sometimes best to kind of look baby steps and definitely learn to crawl before you're walking and worry about that full tilt sprint down the road yeah we, we went from crawling to sprinting and then very rapidly back to crawling exactly <laughs> same uh you had a question sir uh, yes Peter. so maybe i answered your question uh wrong before i i'm really i don't probably intend to sell right i'm not a publisher so i i would like to sell to you mm-hmm. and do that and so happy so, he wants to tell you. <laughs> well, Keep talking. Yeah. All right. Um, so, just well on that. So, it sounds like you're, you, you know, you're very cautious with the person. How did that change, say, your royalty arrangements with your designers relative to those, you know, the buyback, you know, the, the buyback part and things like that? You know, maybe you just avoided that altogether now from your lessons learned. But just the thoughts on that. Honestly, with us. Uh, w- the sales made our designers getting that royalty in, in most cases also is the salesperson making that commission and that's why it, it hurts a company because it usually comes out of our bottom line and not yours as, as the inventor of the game 
So maybe Peter, you have a better way. To uh, Jelly Bean Games is really weird. We pay designers based on print run. So okay. the moment we hit print, we pay the designer okay. because it's not their fault if we can't sell the game. Oh, so yeah. uh, so we're we're very strange in that sense. Mm -hmm. That's not typical. I don't know. Yeah, anyone else I, does I that. actually did see a contract and it had language about you know the buybacks and uh, buy, uh, buybacks and that I'd be helping out of the royalties uh, with that. And so, I, so that's unusual. At least. To yeah. The yeah, but but you know, I, I'm unusual in, in the other ways, so I can't, I can't speak to it. Thank you. I'll, I'll tell you, I've actually I sign games with other publishers as well. Like as a designer, I sign games, and uh, I'll often ask for a scaling royalty. So like, um, you know, x x percent for for the first five thousand games, then plus two percent for the next five thousand games, etc. And I'll tell you that one of the major publishers who signed one of my games refused to do that because if a game takes off and then get it into mass, they get paid such a smaller percentage. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you know, let's say I was asking for 15% if we sold 100,000 copies or something like that. They were like, no, because if we sell 100,000 copies, that means we're in target, which means we are making half the money we would make from something else. So mm -hmm. that's, 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 that's the only useful answer I can give, I think. Do you have thoughts on that, Abby? Uh, more along the lines of if you are designing hoping to sell to a publisher and you are hoping to sell to a publisher that does operate in those uh, are already established and visible in mass market realms you really need to pay attention to their brand and make sure that you that the publishers that are succeeding are succeeding for a reason and if you are an abrupt left turn you just don't even pitch. Like, go back and figure out how to fit their their repertoire, their catalog, because they there is no room in the industry right now for reckless gambling. There's been I can't even count the number of times where I've seen a great game, but I know my partners and I wouldn't be the company to sell right. that game. So you want to sort of fit the mo of company you're pitching to as a designer and you I'm sure would know that yeah so uh, anyone else have any questions about the, the joys of, of mass um, so I'm listening to this and I think certainly for my company we, there's no way we we're even looking at what you call mass I actually thought it was a very different thing for coming on in the, the Catholic then, religious service yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, <laughs> okay. that's the next but, one but, the next panel is that yeah. okay so, so my, my question is then, um, how do you uh, go for the hobby stores, though, those FOBs? Because that's actually where I think all of our games sit, uh, especially the indie games. So what are the best options for going into that type of distribution? Anybody that tells you that they know the answer to that is <laughs> flat out lying to you. So I've got it right all along. It's, it's difficult for <laughs> uh, Anything that I would have uh, offered as conventional wisdom two years ago has changed significantly. Yeah. Um, it is the in book publishing when BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon started competing for that market share. There was a huge transition in a very short period of time, in the space of about five years, revolutionized trad book publishing. And I'm watching analog gaming go through a similar, uh, very fast evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And so the answer is form a relationship with the distributors. Uh, form relationships with retailers, have people invested in the brand of your your game and your company, have somebody in your organization that is responsible for being your, your ringleader, your front man, um, and hit every single possible angle of the three tier, three and a half tier system, 
simultaneously. Do you want to break down what the three and a half tiers are? Uh, he looked like he had a follow-up question Oh, first. sorry. Um, yeah, answer the three and a half to you, and then I'll, then I'll ask the next question. Publishers sell to distributors yes. unless they sell to an aggregator. Aggregators sell to a distributor if there's an aggregator involved, and then distributors sell to retailers. And the thing that a lot of designers coming in don't understand, or publishers coming in don't understand, is that distribution is actually the almost invisible money layer of yep. the industry because they give uh, credit to retailers. Retailers are able to sell this week's magic cards to buy next week's board game uh, or RPG crop. And so the distributors are actually the single most complicated choke point for getting your product to a, a customer. Okay, so the, the next question then, you, I'm glad you clarified that. <coughs> sort of how I viewed it. How do you then communicate directly with the retailers, especially from afar? This would actually be a good question for you. So if you're saying that you've got to triangulate that communication, how do we do that? Uh, to sound completely self-interested, you hire Envoy because I've got a relationship with 500 retailers across the country and have conversations with them on the regular. Uh, but the answer is that as a, as a publisher without some sort of structure, and there are other people doing this. Mm -hmm. There are other people who are doing an excellent job who do it differently than I do. Um, without the capacity to chase down game retailers who are weird. I've dealt with retail, I've, I grew up in food service, I dealt with book publishers, I used to work for the American Booksellers Association. I will tell you that game retailers are the strangest group I've ever dealt with. They're so they, they, Yes, they're fantastic, but they're also weird, right? They don't want to answer their phone, or when you get them on the phone, they need to tell you about everything they've sold this week, right? And you have to be, and you have to be prepared for the fact that you can talk to a store 17 times. And out of those 17 times, 15 of them, they will swear that they don't know what a board game is. Because it just happens. And so having a structure for maintaining those relationships and having that contact is really important. In, 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 in lieu of the distributor kind of hierarchy there, there are ways to go right from publishing through a sales rep to that store, and that's I think what Avi was alluding to as well, sort of using the sales rep to open sales that rep. door. Basically, as a not necessarily the sales I, rep I've met very few sales reps in the analog gaming industry that I would pay money to. Well, I, I, can, I can kind of agree with that, but I would say that regardless of whether it's a sales rep or a distributor, these are your door openers. So yeah. these are the people who are getting your game in front of a buyer at that retail store. And uh, you know the distributor method here works best, but there are certain instances where that sales rep may have a relationship and may say, hey, my guy down here has got a great new product and I've got the relationship at store A and they can facilitate that, that triangle for you. And I would actually, my, my current thinking on the industry is that the distribution model doesn't work and it is completely broken right now. Uh, and so this, there- This is not an uncommon opinion at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's not working for the indies. It's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a if you've got a main if you've got a main rule title, Savage Worlds, whatever, it seems to be working for us. But everything else, it, it's not. I can't hear what the gentleman is saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he said that it's not working for the indies. That if you've got an established brand that already has velocity, then 
uh, it's working, but if you're trying to build those relationships from the ground up, it's kind of a crapshoot right now. I think it was at the end of 2018 that uh, Leader Games, who do Vast and Root and a few others, uh, they put up like a, an availability FAQ. Did you see this? Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was really interesting because they, they said that, I think it was end of 2018, that since Root launched, they had printed 50,000 copies and sold more than 35,000 copies direct. So like Root, Root is, is what I would consider a current massive hit in the industry and they're not selling the majority of their product through retail. That's interesting. And then Stonemeyer is another example of like a, a hit factory and he, he's sort of the opposite. Like Scythe, he sold, I think it was, it was 18,000 in the Kickstarter, something, some crazy high number like that, 18,000. But Lifetime, Scythe has sold 200,000. And the majority of those, I think, are not direct. I think he's very retailer uh, connected. So uh, the single working optimal path does not exist, unfortunately. Uh, so I, I do as much reading as I can. And uh, the, the from afar thing is the bit that throws off the answer. Because one way to very effectively connect with a bunch of retailers is to go to ACD Day, is to go to Gamma. And you will meet not only retailers, you'll meet the retailers who are there to meet you. Like, uh, we have a game, Village Pillage, which uh, people very much like, and I was at Gamma just being like, you, come over here, play this game. And they're like, oh, a Bluehead blue Australian's calling me over. Played it, and we're like, oh, this is actually good. And kind of, I had a connection suddenly. Like, they were invested in my game, they knew who I was, they were a retailer who liked this specific product, but the man hours in that is, is intense. Like, you can't do it from Australia. Well, um, how to run a demo team that helps you do that on the retailer level is a much broader conversation. Yeah. Um, one of the phenomena that I have been watching and dissecting and like, okay, how did they do this? What did they need in order to do this? And how the hell do we replicate it? Is Splendor. Splendor mm. slid in and became the game that grandparents buy for their kids, for, for their, fa their families, uh, because it showed up during the Black Friday sales on Amazon on the front page of the Daily Deals for less than 20 bucks. And people were like, oh, I'll buy that on Cyber Monday. And it created enough momentum that it became the thing that when people walk into a hobby game store and go, I played this thing at my buddy's house over Thanksgiving and I wanna get a copy to play with over Christmas because then there's fewer awkward conversations. And it created that brand recognition, yeah. that inoculation, incubation, both, uh, but, the, the factors involved in that, yeah. like the number of copies they had to have available for Amazon to even think about it, mm -hmm. was a was more copies of a, a single title than I think Peter has ever printed. Right. And so it is an interesting thing where they, they punched through that veil and they became the next ticket to ride, the next one where mm -hmm. mundanes are like, oh yeah, I saw that, like I've played that once. But, yeah. The, the the barrier to get there was huge. Yeah, the, the answer is become a hit that everyone wants. <laughs> yeah, it just moves the question back one step. <laughs> well, it's like that Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point. Yeah, and, yeah. And sure how did you get right to now. that tip over point? And you know what what we're what we've found and and what we uh, attempt to do every year with new products is to sort of. Uh, sweeten the odds of hitting that tipping point by using demo people and by selling to specialty and hobby stores that we know will showcase our product and we'll put it up front or we'll open up a copy or like I said the employees will take one home and play it so that you just want to you know stack the odds a little bit more in your favor because we're all playing against the house and the house is winning 
assume that you're giving away free copies. Like just as, like yeah. build that into the budget. Um, yeah. Rick, you had a question. I was wondering if if because thinking of Splendor, like by far the most games I played the Splendor have been on my iPad. Like, is there do any of you have any information about how do iPad versions of games impact? So I, I can, uh, I, I've not done that personally. I don't know. We we attempted to with the game we put out about ten years ago called Name Five. We went to do a digital app for it, and it didn't capture the magic of it. I mean, I'm an analog guy. I I don't like when you. I have seen games. In fact, we're looking at a game that marries the digital and the analog. But I think everyone here at this convention and most people in gaming prefer the human interactivity of playing a game that you're opening up the box and moving pieces and answering questions or what have you, as opposed to doing this on your laptop or on your iPad or iPhone. Um, See, and I, I tend to, I, I get impatient with the setup and mm -hmm. the physicality. Yeah. And so I really, I tend to, like, Castles of Mad King Ludwig, uh, Splendor, Through the Ages. There's no circumstances in which Through the Ages <laughs> is hitting the table in my household, <laughs> okay. but on my phone, sure. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, the games industry hates data. Okay. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> yeah. it does not exist because there's nobody really collecting it in useful ways. So Mad King Ludwig would be a really interesting one, right? That's not Splendor, it's not Scythe, but it's still... I can't speak from experience, but I can tell you that Justin Gary, who is Stoneblade, uh, he says that Ascension, the digital app, is the oh. single best thing he's ever done. Well, but that was, that's your, like, that came out early in the cycle. Like, that was when there was, there were only, like, two blue really cool games. Yeah, like uh, also I think Ascension's uniquely positioned in that it is much more fun digitally. Yeah, because, yeah, uh, and, and sure. so, like, the reason there's been a million expansions to Ascension, I think, is because the, the, the digital implementation is feeding that. Um, I, I, I can tell you the process, uh, if you don't have a hit, so if, if you're not, you know, if you've got Splendor, people are contacting you and right. being like, please, can we do this? If not, you will typically be paying a company to do it. And I think I got an estimate once. Have you dealt with this? It was, it was in the tens of thousands. So, like, yeah. All right. uh, <laughs> low, but it's a massive I investment. Yeah, it was it was it was less than a hundred, more than twenty, somewhere in that range. And it, it, it's a gamble, like everything in the industry, it's a gamble. But that's a particularly like that money does not necessarily just turn back. Like you don't get stock at the end of that. You have you have a thing that needs updating every six months. And it's like uh, hitting the Kickstarter uh, their highlights page or landing on the Apple. Uh, these are the games we love right now. Like if you manage to land there, great. If you don't, I'm and just going to assume there's no, one, there's no there's no board game that's gone in Apple Arcade that anyone's aware of. No one, to what's that? The what? Apple Arcade, there's a new subscription service. Arcade, okay, not that I'm aware of. That would be an interesting yeah. thing to see. Like, the, the other big risk of a digital implementation is now you've got a relationship with another company, yeah. <laughs> and that can be the most complex thing at all, especially when there's tens of thousands of dollars involved. Mm -hmm. So, it's it's a it's a big risk. I wasn't using around Kickstarter, and I saw there one product, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a digital game board, and it's got, massively like, it's, it's going to get massive game boards into it, like, you want to play Scrabble, boom, you punch up your Scrabble board, and you can play, move pieces on it, and it senses the pieces. So, rather, rather than invest too heavily like something four, like that. You could connect four of them together and make it big, or? I, I would, I would if, if you're interested in that, I would do, like, a, a, a soft trial with Tabletop Simulator, who allow you to put 
paid copies of your games up, and if it doesn't spark there, I would not not hold my breath expecting to spark on a different version of that, essentially. Uh, I took one look at the the product that you just described and said, oh, it's like the Apple Newton. Looks really flashy, it's really cool, people are going to pay a lot for it, but it's going to be the next Google Glass, right? Is this the it's going to No, it's up. Because Simon are doing one as well, so, or come on, whatever their name is. Yeah, but this is like, you can, any game you have, you can just pull up on it. Yeah. Google it. I don't know how it knows. During our Kickstarter, we were asked uh, to connect with Tabletopia, right. which is a similar sort of service. Yeah. And they asked around our fan base, and they said, maybe it'll have a kick, but no one was really that interested. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on explicitly the different types of tabletop simulators that are out there. So the the two that I know of are Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. Uh, Tabletop Simulator is a one-time purchase, you have it for life, and then you can buy little digital add-ons or people can upload them for free. Tabletopia is a subscription model, but I don't quite understand the subscription model. So I've not gone near it, uh, but I know that they're both they're both popular. For me, I, I we have a free print and play. You can go to jellybean.game/printplay and download any of our games in full and play it uh, by printing and playing it. So for me, we, we we do this instead of the tabletop simulator thing. We're like, look, if you really want it, just print and play it. Like you can do that right now. Um, but I know some people who swear by the tabletop simulator and the tabletopia just because there's so much on Kickstarter nowadays that people want to try before they buy. Yeah. And so, as long as you have an avenue, I think that like it's really much of a muchness. I don't, I don't see people being like, "There's only a print and play. You're not on tabletop. How dare you?" So, on that last question, we we did the print and play option yep. for, the, for the early backers. Um, oh, we we just do it for free. For, for free. Yeah. That was the question. Yeah. So, any impact do you think on potential sales? I don't think so. We invest so much. Sorry, I'm hogging the table. Uh, no, uh, we we put so much money into art and nice production and. It's a tactile industry, like Brian was saying earlier. Like people, people want to be there in person, touching the things. So, uh, for me, it's more of an accessibility thing. Like, if you can't afford my twenty-dollar game, I, I want you to play it because I want people to play my games. So, I, I don't, I don't care enough about whatever that percentage is. Whereas I know that um, Travis Worthington, who runs Indie Boards and Cards, is like vigilant, vigilant, yeah, about not letting any of his rule books be on Board Game Geek. And I'm like, what's the really like? Okay. Which means when I'm like, I have a certification and I have to relearn this game yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> for, for me, the, the potential lost profit is just not worth the inconvenience. Brian, I agree. On that? No, I, I, I agree 100%. Everything that we have from day one in Endless Games, as long as we could go back and find those rules, because we kind of got started into this before Kickstarter, before a lot of these, uh, you know, these, these online capabilities to play the game. So... When we went back to our catalog and there were people yeah. requesting old copies of the instructions, so we just went ahead and put up every every rule book and in some cases where it may not have been a, a, where it wasn't a game that had a card deck where the questions were in the booklet of the rules, they just went up online too and it never affected the sales on the on the front end. It was only uh, just an asset to have on the back end of it for those who had an old version of the game or just wanted to read up a little bit more on it and then go out and make the purchase. So it never uh, hurt. Chris Tang with Drive Through RPG is here, and the most valuable thing he taught me, like in in the first thirty seconds after I met him, he taught me something that completely revolutionized how I think about free content for RPGs specifically which is that they have actual quantifiable data that demonstrates that putting up free content related to your RPG drives sales. 
And it's these peaks and valleys where people will, I can imagine that it probably tracks to like finals time when people are like, I'm just going to procrastinate by downloading all the free content. And then at some point in the future, they go through and they're like, okay, I've downloaded all this free content. Now I'm going to go buy some of these things. And there's a correlation. There is a benefit. There is actually a trackable benefit to free content related to your RPG. And that to me, like, it makes sense. Put up free character sheets. Put up, you know, a playbook that you can only get by downloading it from DriveThruRPG. And then people have a reason. Completionists are going to be like, well, now I have this stupid playbook. Now what? I guess I have to go buy the game. Blew my mind. And the, the, it has quite the opposite effect. Someone had a question? Someone at the hand raise? Okay. Brian, at the beginning you had mentioned something about uh, packaging choices. Mm -hmm. You know, how you were maybe trying to ride the middle or... Yeah, right. Just, just, uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, we're still trying to figure that out because uh, I, I do hear from some of our specialty and hobby uh, customers who say, we look too mass. And, you know, we, we straddle the fence. Uh, we've, we've sold... The Family Feud and The Price is Right, Newlywed Games, and some of those TV game show titles I had mentioned into mass using the same basically graphic design team that does a lot of our independently produ independently created product over here. So I think that there is that kind of uh, inherent mass philosophy from our graphic design team as much as I try to, and I've used other people and we've gone away from that, but... I honestly can't figure it out because I look at it and I say, hey, I go back to that book analogy and is this cover compelling? Does it make me want to pick it up? Um, I think sometimes if I'm in a hobby shop, there may be more information right on the front. Maybe, you know, you guys may be able to actually help me out and speak more to that. Uh, one of the things that was working for a while for some of my publishers is if they had custom tokens or custom dice. Put it in peak boxes mm -hmm. so that people and the one of my publishers saw a substantial increase when they went from a solid box to a peak box on a game that was a bunch of custom dice. Um, but then I had a publisher that took that advice to heart but had an insert in their box. So when you stood the box up, it slid down <laughs> and covered the peak box. And I'm like, oh, that's a pitfall I didn't think to account for or warn about. Ha! Huh. Uh, and I have had people have less effect out of the peak boxes in the last year than two years ago they were having. And so I don't know if it's custom dice fatigue, whether it's that people are buying these things, you know, buying in on Kickstarter for the things they want custom dice out of and then not buying them in retail. I don't know, but it was a thing that if you were doing custom dice, I'm like, I, you can't not do a peak box. And at this point, I'm not sure that it's worth the investment for the extra... Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't have good numbers, but I know that it's not as much of a bump as it was three years well, ago. It definitely will cut into your margin as the manufacturer building yep. this bigger, flashier package. And we've done that. And we've had 3D boxes that looked like an old school TV set and things were coming at you. And, and then the, the, the sort of the plastic that would have been the TV screen glass kept blowing out of them when oh, they yeah. closed the lid. So... Uh, you know, as much as you want to try to set yourself apart, sometimes 
the quality control on that is a lot more than if you're just building the standard game box. Well, and you have to understand what your retailers want because uh, USAopoly did wonky and it was a non-square box. And it works really well in mass. Game, like hobby retailers hate that stupid box and they're yeah. just like, why, why does it not stand up? What did you do to me? And I'm like, I didn't make any of those decisions. I'm sorry it makes you sad. But it really does. They get really agitated by it. The uh, the, the big thing I've learned about boxes is just make it as big as you can. <laughs> I love so what, silly. So Jellybean did a brilliant thing where they did the bigger box and then an insert. Because oh, yeah. I'm a tuck box person. I want a box mm. that is small enough that I can throw it in my bag and go. And so if I know that that box is going to hold up in my backpack, I'm likely to buy two copies of the game, one for me and one for my sister. Right? Yeah. And so the fact that they combined the enough table presence and enough shelf presence that a retailer isn't going to accidentally shove it off the back of the shelf and never reorder. But it's also a tug box was brilliant. Yeah, so, so we, have, we have a big box because you got to do big, big old boxes for no reason. Uh, and then we have a tuck box inside that you can put the actual game in. Mm -hmm. uh, Splendor's the one that gets the most flack for it. People are like, it's a big box of, of empty space. And you're like, yes, but without that big box of empty space, it wouldn't have been a big hit. Nope. Like it would not have looked as nice when people opened it up, and it would not have felt like as much of an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Make, make your box big. <laughs> Basically, look at your price point. Look at other boxes at that price yeah. point. So, uh, one, one of our one of our um, distribution partners pulled pulled Munchkin off the shelf. It was like, you're making a twenty dollar game. This is what people are comparing you to. And Munchkin, I don't know if you know, has has a box like it's huge. Uh, code names is not a huge amount smaller. Like it's it's big. It's deeper. It's deep, it's yeah, yeah. Deeper. So, so we, we were doing, we, we started on Kickstarter, so we were like, what's the cheapest way we can ship them? So we were sending these tiny little boxes, and our backers loved them. We were like, we're going to keep doing this, and we've gone to retail, and we were told no. Like, mm -hmm. a box this size, no matter how much game you have in it, is not going to sell for more than 10 bucks. You want to sell 20 bucks? You've got to go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Perceived value. Perceived value, yeah. We're all, we're all apes and down, down deep, and so we see bigger, and we're like, that's more expensive, because it's bigger. It's ridiculous. Until you price yourself out of the perceived value and people are like, oh, that's too expensive for me. And they're right. like, don't even pick it up, don't look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Questions? Okay, uh, when you're making games, my goal for any of my publishers, unless you are doing something really niche and that has a following built in, is you really want it to be something that mom is excited to buy and a parent or aunt can teach it on Boxing Day at the Christmas table without crying. And that holds for mass, that holds for specialty, that holds for hobby. Unless you are specifically doing a game that is supposed to be more complicated than that, uh, your highest likelihood for actually selling that game is to make sure that auntie can teach it without throwing it out the window. Some and it can be onto my level, right? Right? Like I can, I can pick up a rule book, and, but if I can't teach it, you're gonna miss sales, and you're go you have stacked the odds against yourself. There's there's a lot of advice that we're given within the hobby because where where you know people in, people in the hobby or people in the industry particularly have like played a, a thousand games, and so they've got. But then you you learn from retailers to kind of go against a lot of that advice. And one thing I learned is. Widen that player range as much as you can while it's still playable. Like we, had, we had a game, uh, 3 to 12 players, and retailers were like, what, 3 to 12 players? You know, give us all of this, because they can sell that to any size group. And it's good at 3 to 12 players, fortunately, but uh, you'll hear a lot of people within the industry and within the hobby being like, if it doesn't work at 3, make it a 2 player only. And sure, there is a market for that, 
but if you can widen that player range, bend over backwards to do so. <laughs> as long as it's good at all, but like you know, don't 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 really something that's unplayable at six and call please it. A, do, a, yeah, two, don't six please game. don't sell me a seven player don't game like that doesn't work about for four. fifteen people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, th there's a lot of advice. I guess more specifically within the design community of like pick a player range and design to that player range. And I'm saying, look, that's nice, but if you want to sell copies of the game. The more you can widen that, the more retailers will be excited because I can sell it to more people. And if you're collecting advice and someone gives you an absolute definitive, this is the only way to do it, they're they're wrong. Make a hit that sells a lot of copies. That's the right. <laughs> I mean, when it's definitive that vague, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so say you walk, you want to go to your local hobby store and you'd like them to carry your game. You walk in with a copy and you go, "Hi, I got a game. Will you buy it?" Like, how? What is the the bitch you should do. How do you introduce uh, yourself or approach it? Do you make an appointment first? Or? So, I mean, what, what's what's your goal here? Is it for that one store to, to sell one copy of your game? Or is it to have an ongoing relationship? No, well, you don't walk in with a hand truck with, you know, So, so it, uh, this might be a generalization, correct me if I'm wrong, but you shouldn't really be selling to individual retailers necessarily. Okay. Like, you want to go through the, the tiered system because yeah. the retailer, like, in a, in a retail, think of it from the retail point of view. From their ideal point of view, they have one button they press that orders all the games for them. Mm -hmm. As it is, they already have to deal with however many distributors, and that's a nightmare for them. So to now have this game that's, that's coming off the street, and they're like, oh man, we sold two copies of that, should we get more in? Well, we have to, who do we, it's not through a distributor, we have to, like, you're inventing a new system for them to interface with. Okay. And so just like in game design, like don't give people more stuff to do unnecessarily. Like you want to, I, and this is obviously, I'm speaking to someone who's, who's doing it so it's easy for me to say you want to be in distribution because it makes it easier for the retailers to buy your games that's that, that's that same door opener effect where you've got the distributor who's going to speak on your behalf who's going to showcase your product on your behalf or at least have it in the catalog at least have it in the catalog yeah on so, net 30 yeah terms. i mean in a distributor and going back to your point about sales reps they'll know more than a lot of sales reps will and that's often frustrating for me because I, I want to be in every sales pitch because I'm going to know more about my right. product than any sales rep will. But, at some point but there's just not enough bandwidth right. to be so in every store at every yeah. you know, moment of every day. Just to clarify, when we were talking about a relationship with retailers earlier, that wasn't necessarily a one-to-one -one sales relationship. We're saying like they know what your game is, but your ideal situation is, hey, you like this game? Cool, you can get it through any of your distributors. And then they can just do that without you having to be involved. So the relationship is more with your game uh, as, as a concept than a direct financial. Does that make sense? I sure as we might have been confusing when we were talking yeah. about so, relationships with retailers. Um, there are probably a dozen retailers across the country, hobby retailers across the country that have thriving local developer markets where they buy things either straight out or on consignment and turn around and sell it in their store and that's part of their shtick. That is not the norm because they just don't have, like Peter said, that's bandwidth. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's not a walk in and show up like a pharmaceutical salesperson with your bag of stuff and be like, here, let me show you what I have. It is very much more like be part of the community and build up the excitement within the community for local games by local designers, work with the retailer. But that is like, if I were working on that, I would be expecting that to be a two to five year plan. Mm -hmm. So we should go to whatever stores we want to be in and maybe say, hey, what distributors do you work with? Uh, there is only a handful of distributors, yeah. so that that's a different conversation that you and I can have off screen. But it won't hurt you to try to make some of those relationships oh, yeah. yourself. Yeah, 
And, and, and even if you start to become friendly with one of these uh, store owners, to say, well, look, the reason I'm always in here kind of bothering you with my litany of questions about who you're buying from is because I've got this product, and would you mind maybe taking a look at it? And sometimes you can build up to that relationship, and, you know, kind of that's what we're here to do, and yeah. we're in this business of building relationships, and so we can start from that ground level, but that's a much yeah. longer path to get to the, you know... It, it doesn't really, really make financial to. sense for either of no. you to be doing this directly when there's, there's systems in place. Uh, one there and then one here. So yeah, I was going to ask about the distributors because you're saying sales reps may not be worth the, the money that we're paying them potentially. So real world example for me, Kickstarter game, did an initial print run of 500. I'm selling about 50% of the stuff I have left on Amazon. I'm going to Chicago Toy Game a couple weeks from now. I don't know people in the market. I'm here to learn and, and build relationships and so forth. Um, I have a kind of niche financial card game, right? Um, I'm not trying to hit for the fences, but I think in various markets, I might get some traction. But how do I approach a, a distributor, right? So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so, so just like it's not really worth having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a retailer, from a distributor point of view, the advice I always give is they're interested in people with five games who are going to be making games ongoing. Like and, for them, for them to set up a, a new title, two hundred and fifty mm -hmm. copies is not. It's not worth it. Yeah. But what you'll find at Chai Tag is manufacturers who will look at your game and want to basically license that game from you, right. and you know pay you out of, you know on a royalty. So you right. won't have the ownership of that. But that's going to be that would take you out of the equation in so far as you're not going to be hiring sales reps or, or shopping it to a distributor. Some other company's doing that for you. Right. So. Um, yeah, d distributors want people who have a catalog and an ongoing catalog. Like, they, they want to put the time that they want to invest in you, knowing that that investment will pay off in an ongoing capacity. They, they don't they don't care about one game or two games or. And they're we, not we going to give five up games before we signed. They're not going to give up floor space in their warehouse for two hundred fifty copies because if it picks up, they're going to be sold out, and then everybody's pissed at them for not having more copies. Yeah. I mean, I do have not that this matters, but I do have more games being printed now and coming and, and so forth, but you're saying until I'm a known entity, a distributor's not going to really not really. Right. Uh, I will. I will give it's you. It's so saturated. Yeah, it really is. I will give you anybody that wants an hour of my time for anybody that wants to like talk about where they are and where they're positioned and what their pitfalls are. I am happy to do the like warning. Here be dragons. Let's talk about what risks you're undertaking and like what currently is on fire in the industry, uh, so that you can adjust appropriately. Yeah, I did that three years ago. It changed my life. So if I'm, I'm uh, if I have like super niche, like or at least like it's targeted at specific audiences, it's, and like it's probably going to be not like a, a really broad and just like one right now that I'm working on, I shouldn't even bother trying to get it into hobby stores. Mm, uh, like, so you are slightly different. Uh, uh, I mean, like, like RPG, uh, indie RPG, RPG yeah, very oh, yeah, small yeah. light indie RPG. So itch. Drive through RPG, IPR. It is a it is a different it's a different distributor, um, and it is a different conversation. Um, I would IGDN. Um, your your pathway is a little different, and I'm I'm happy I, I, to talk I about that. Yeah, is, uh, but most of this is about board games. 
Um, I would say that a lot of where you're going to find the sweet spot right now is itch. Yeah, I. I what is it? It's like drive-through RPG, but it's the it's the Instagram versus the Facebook. It's not itch.io. Yeah. Oh, it is. Okay, you're just saying just itch. Yes. Okay. Just in video games, we always say the whole thing. So. I don't know. Board gamers have dropped it at me like I was supposed to know what it was, and I had to go Google it, and they were all saying itch. Video games. Uh, role play people. So if you're not if you don't have enough games for a pub or a distributor, you mentioned aggregators. Yes. Can we get those? They are a half level in between the two and uh, they will basically be that agent salesperson try to get because they have a vested interest, they get a cut of what you make. And they do the interfacing with the distributors and the fulfillment to the distributors and often will give distributors access to your product in a way that if a retailer picks up the phone and says, so Anne was in here and talked me into buying a case of stadium dice, I need to buy it right now, uh, the, the distributor can go to PSI or Flat River and say, okay, I need a case of stadium dice and there's no risk on the distributor side of things. Yeah. The reason why I brought up the question in the first place is because yeah. I, I have seen in the RPGs in, in some game stores, like, in fact, my earliest memory of, like, interacting with uh, in the RPGs was finding a copy of Microscope in, uh, uh, in a game store. I would, I would almost be willing to put money on the idea that they were an Indie Press Revolution customer. Um, and when we're done here, uh, I'm happy to introduce you to Jason with IPR, who's here. Um, because he is a wealth of information and will be able to help you like hit that sweet spot of size and and weirdness and yeah, appeal for I'm, indie RPG I'm people. I'm hoping to do a Kickstarter at some point. Cool. Um, cool. Uh, any any final question? I've got one one request. Um, are you anything after this? You said you'd give some time to people. Oh, that's a book with me for not now. Book with you for not now. That's what I was checking. Okay. Awesome. So let's do that. Maybe Is there a minimum amount of games that you should have before trying to contact aggregators? Uh, it needs to be, it can't just be a good game. It needs to be a great to excellent game. And then a single title is okay. Like, reach out to them. There's no risk in yeah. reaching out. You're not going to get blacklisted or anything like that. Okay. Cool. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Sorry that it was all doom and gloom right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the industry. <laughs> That's not our fault. Here be dragons. Yeah, yeah. Thank you everybody. Thanks, guys. Hey, could you send me that photo by the way? Yeah.